Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I'm Ella and I'm in the studio here with Claudia. Morning, Ella. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. We had a frantic run around to get into the studio. We spent too long talking about the election in the uh, 3CR kitchen and suddenly realised we had to get in here. (laughs) Yeah, but we're here now. Yes, here now with our coffees ready to go. (laughs) So the election wrap-up. Yeah, that's right. Big weekend. (laughs) Absolutely. Australia spoke. Yes, yeah. And um, yeah, I think the resounding message was, um, yeah, action on climate change, which was really exciting Mm. to see. Yeah. Um, we know it's something a lot of people care about, but I, I think in past elections, it just hasn't been the main thing people care about. So it's ended up getting bumped down the priority list. So it's really Absolutely. exciting to see it um, in the results this year. Yeah, I think um, the thing that I was most impressed and excited by was the fact that the Australian people really sent that message of what was important to them and... And I think that would send a, a strong message to both the major parties who um, did deal with climate, but even Labor's position wasn't as strong as uh, it needed to be. So no, I think, yeah, I think uh, um, the clear message there is that Australia does want that change, um, but also there's that message of you can't just take us for a ride. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Labor's policy wasn't particularly exciting either, but I think, um, yeah, their aim was just to be not as bad as the Liberals without being too radical, but I think hopefully now they're going to be, yeah. Mm. I think we're still waiting to see whether they'll have majority or minority um, in terms of the seating, but hopefully they're going to have to do some dealings with people who, um, yeah, have stronger climate opinions and get some more exciting legislation through. <laughs> Absolutely, and the... Um yeah, the, I mean, the Greens have got more seats and the Teal Independents uh, were all pitching for climate action. So I think there's going to be a lot of strong um, debate. Yeah, can't wait. And action. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, hopefully we'll see those renewable projects coming on. Yeah, definitely. Were you um, yeah, keeping your eye on the news over the weekend? Then Absolutely, the, yeah. yeah. I um, Watched all the election coverage on Saturday night. That was yep. <laughs> Saturday night in, but uh, got quite engaged this year. And our seat uh, was McNamara, which still hasn't been called. So I've been watching that uh, closely. Oh, uh, real, yeah, nail biter. You'll have to keep posting. That's right. They're still waiting, I think, to count all the postal votes to determine who's in third place. Um, and then they can do the preferences because it's, yeah, it's very close. Uh, it's suggesting Labor will retain the seat and um yeah just got to wait for that confirmation and oh, uh, the space yeah, yeah exactly 
in the Melbourne electorate. So I think that was one Fairly of the quicker safe. ones to be called. Yeah, Adam Bent had a, a good night. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he did. And uh, I think one of the Brisbane seats also went to Grains. Yeah, I think uh, two last day checked. Um, and yeah, another was even really close. They have to admit, yeah, Saturday night and Sunday I was um, hooked to the TV and my laptop, but then I kind of switched off yesterday. I had a really long day of work and had a bit of information overload. So um, yeah, I'll have to look in. But so far, or last I checked, yeah, two um, green seats, which is really exciting. And a lot of um, uh, liberal voters, it seemed like, voting green, which is, um, yeah, surprising. Um, yeah, the shift um, in the Liberal uh, voting preferences is, was really significant, that really big swing away from Liberal, uh, from their own supporters. So Yeah, and yeah, it's always hard to kind of um, uh, deduce, the, deduce <laughs> the exact uh, reasons why, but I think a lot of people are uh, hypothesising that it's because of the floods. Um, so the mm. seats that have been elected so far to the Greens are all right on the Brisbane River. Um, and, yeah, I think just that very visceral reminder of the effects of climate change. Mm. Um, is, yeah, well, the reality, you know, for those yeah, people even experiencing the that the tragedy <laughs> and the upheaval and the, you know, the everyday despair uh, and to not feel listened to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, yes, speaking of the lived reality of climate change, you and I uh, went along and saw the view from up here last week. Uh, That's right. We went to the Theatre Works. Uh, Ella had spoken with the director. Yeah, Fiona Slutskowski. So, yeah, it was really exciting to see it come to life after hearing her tell us all about it. And um, reminded the listeners that was a story about a family uh, who were affected by bushfires, um, sort of all returning home to their family property. Um, so it was a domestic drama centering uh, around differences and conf- yeah. conflict within the family unit and set against the, the backdrop of, of their home being destroyed and literally walking around in the ashes to uh, come to terms with what had happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was saying it was um, family drama at the foreground and um, environmental impacts in the background. Mm, but <laughs> um, still some strong messages. The mother of the family was very keen to stay in the area, even though it was prone to bushfires, and the children were sort of trying to encourage her to make a fresh start somewhere else. But those uh, very strong personal community ties were evident and um, you could understand her position, you could understand the children's position, wanting her to settle somewhere which didn't have the potential for that type of damage and um, I think there are really real issues for people living in those communities. Yeah, yeah, I think they were going through, um, yeah, the same uh, dilemmas that a lot of people go through um, that we hear a lot about. So it was kind of, um, yeah, nice to see it with a human uh, side to it because I'm so often used to reading about that kind of thing in the news or um, and I think it yeah mm. and the intimacy of theatre and the even the the smoke screen that we when we were taking our seats and going into the theatre they had a smoke screen and um, yeah I was sort of 
saying to you, oh, we can't quite see, and then it hits that that's what it would be like if you were immersed in smoke (laughs) and you wouldn't be able to breathe either. But, yeah, so it was very effective, the whole um, production. Definitely, yeah, it was a cool um, setup. It was all sort of in the audience are sitting in a big U-shape around the Mm. um, stage. And, um, yeah, it was all very smoky when you arrived, so you couldn't see a whole lot, as you said. I think you and I accidentally ended up with some of the best seats in the house. We kind of picked the first ones we could see, but it ended up being kind of right at the front. Um, But I think there wasn't a bad seat. (laughs) The design of it, yeah, um, felt really inclusive of the audience. Mm. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Anyway, uh, time's ticking. We've got a full show. Should we uh, go through the rundown for today? Quick rundown and then uh, on to our first interview. So um, I'll be speaking with Richard Sawada, the director of the St Kilda Festival, in a few moments. Um, The St Kilda Film Festival, I should say. And that is Australia's longest running short story film festival kicks off this Friday night, so Richard's going to give us uh, the wrap on the program highlights and share a bit of the magic of short films. Excellent. And, yeah, I'm going to be speaking with Debbie Hamilton, who's a systemic mental health advocate. Um, She's got experience on both sides of the mental health system. Um, At the moment, she's working with the NDIS to improve a lot of their processes around the needs of people with a psychosocial disability. Um, And she's one of the speakers at an event tonight. Uh, It's called Grassroots to Governance. It's being held by Wellways. And, yeah, looking at ways um, to uh, improve systems and include more people um, with lived experience um, to make the process better um, for people using the systems. Mm. Um, Very relevant. Definitely, and it seems, yeah, kind of obvious to include someone who's actually used the service and the development of it, but probably doesn't happen enough, so I want to hear more from Debbie about that. Yes, well, speaking of people that have used the system, uh, we're going to be continuing our conversation with Linda Fisk. Last week um, she joined us and spoke about the barriers women face when they leave prison and re-enter the community, and uh, she is the co-founder of Seeds of Affinity Pathways for Women, and that's an organisation that helps women when they are setting out to re-establish themselves in community. And this week she'll be talking about the tech tool they've developed, which is called LindaBot. It's named after her. And it was designed with the women themselves and it is a tool to help them adjust and navigate some of the challenges that uh, are present in that journey. Excellent. Yeah, it'll be good to um, yeah hear the second half of that discussion. I'm looking forward to it. And, um, yeah, we will be joined by Jacob later in the show. They'll be in a bit later. Um, and they'll be revisiting the ninth anniversary of the Rana Plaza tragedy that happened in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and the importance of worker solidarity, which sounds important and interesting. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we'll have another election unpack with Jacob towards the end of the show, I reckon. Uh, in the meantime, let's get started with the song.
Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard The Cruel Sea with This Is Not The Way Home. Thanks, Ella. Well, after the election last weekend, consuming so much of our attention, it's nice for other events to claim some of the limelight. 
The St Kilda Film Festival is a mainstay in the Australian film festival circuit and kicks off this Friday evening with a gala event at the Astor Cinema in St Kilda. The festival celebrates and promotes the short film in all its genres and offers audiences and industry participants an array of opportunities to immerse themselves in short films. Here to talk about the smorgasbord of offerings this year is the festival director, Richard Sawada. Welcome, Richard, to 3CR Breakfast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, the festival is in its 39th year. What makes it so special? Well, as you were saying, it's devoted to short films. So we screen, this year we're screening about 70, not about, exactly, 72 brand new Australian short films. Uh, and I guess there's only one other festival in the country that looks at short films. Uh, but um, uh, so that's uh, that's the, the main thing with the festival. We have like film, uh, filmmakers from all around the country coming along to um, to talk about their films and to, to represent their films and to develop networks and the whole and collaborations and the whole uh, the whole slate of things. So um, yeah, that's the thing. It's a really fantastic event to be associated with. I love it. It's great. And the short short films. They're just so brilliant, and the, the filmmakers are, are, you know, they're so fresh, they're new and emerging filmmakers and such, so they're um, very ambitious. The films are uh, a different kind of scale to, to what you see, you know, with, um, you know, feature films at the movies and, and such, and, yeah, that's the, that's the thing with the festival. I'm very proud to be associated with, with it and the filmmakers. So while we're talking short films, how short is a short film? <laughs> You know what? That's a really, really good question. I, I haven't, I haven't ever been asked that. Uh, and you know, I've shown short films, um, not necessarily with the St Kilda Film Festival, with other things that I've done, that are li- literally four seconds. Uh, and one I showed a couple of years ago actually was called Life, and you know, the the, the credits came up, and uh, you know, it, it was just the, um, you know, the, the title sequence, Life, and then it was finished. And I thought, you know what? That's a really clever movie. But um, for the purposes, because the Film Festival is uh, accredited with the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is the Oscars. And the Oscars, uh, to be in the running for a short film award at the Oscars, uh, your film has to be 45 minutes or less. So the, uh, so the Oscars, the Academy, um, uh, you know, defines short films as 45 minutes or less. Uh, and this year we had... We had a, a, a number of films that were running at 45 minutes or so, which was uh, which was quite interesting. It's actually reasonably rare to get a short film that's that's that long, and usually they kind of run around the eight to ten minute mark is the is what we generally find. But sometimes much shorter. I, I really love the super super short ones. They're, they're really great. And before we move on to the uh, highlights of this year's festival, I was also interested to hear uh, from you what some of the common misconceptions might be about small or short films, I should say, um, because just because a, a film is short does not mean that it would be quick and easy to make. I expect it's rather like a, a short story where it's actually quite hard to tell a story in a short period of time. Is that correct? Yeah, look, that's, that's another really interesting question. Uh, in that, like people, I think generally the misconception of short films is that they're, 
know, a bit of fun and a bit of fluff and, you know, you know, a little bit light and, you know, breezy. Uh, and they often are, but um, they, they, they can be exactly the opposite. And that's the, that's the beauty and the surprise of them when, when you see them. Like, many of them are made, you know, passport um, uh, works to pave the way to creating a feature film or something like that. Many, but most uh, exist in their own right as, as short films. And many of the many filmmakers work with short films for their entire career, uh, especially filmmakers who are working with with experimental films and and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, and particularly, you know, what I've found over the last couple of years with short films, because I think of COVID and because of the changing, uh, you know, sort of economic and political environment and social environment as well is that they, they are becoming much more serious. And, I mean, they, they generally have been as well. But, you know, there's a lot of social justice in them. There's a lot of critical social comment in them uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And there's uh, a lot of um, voices coming out now that deal with... There's a lot of women's voices coming out. There's a lot of First Nations voices coming out. There's a lot of um, gay and lesbian voices coming out where... Previous years, they've really those those filmmakers, particularly, and those stories also, have had a, a very heavy lid put on them. And now the lid has been lifted through funding structures and, and the way um, short films are funded and the, the requirements of them of diversity for diversity and that sort of thing. There's a there's a different kind of voice coming out now, and those voices have been kept quiet for a very long time. Uh, and now they're allowed to speak free and openly, and it's really wonderful to see, and that is a very different uh, landscape than what we've seen in, in previous years. So, um, you know, there, there is the comedies, there is the, the, the light and breezy films, but there's also the, the serious social comment, um, which is really, really fantastic to see uh, and very rewarding for viewers, I think, because that's just so surprising. It's just not something you expect from a short film. Mm. And uh, let's um, perhaps talk about some of those different um, diverse elements of the programming. So the women's um, section is uh, titled Shifting the Gaze. Mm. Can you tell us what we can expect from the lineup of films there? Well, what I've tried to do with that program, that's presented by Women in Film and TV, which is an organisation that supports uh, women in film and TV. Uh, and there's, what I've tried to do there is run the gamut and, and show the diversity of women's voices within the screen sector. So we have um, documentaries, uh, animations, uh, short dramas, and, and comedies as well. But there's some very, very lovely works in there. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of films in there that, you know, when we're talking about um, being accredited by the Motion, by the motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Academy, um, that could quite easily be in the international running for major film awards, including something like the Oscars. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the stories there, as with uh, many of the stories, again, because of COVID, um, are, are really stripped back. They're really um, authentic. They're very you know, ensemble-driven, so very small casts. And they're really dealing with, again, like so many films in, in the program, they're dealing with small moments and, and, and relationships, that intimate relationships and 
not not grand statements or anything like that necessarily, but just really lovely moments that are really surprising and um, unexpected. Uh, so that's uh, that's that's a really lovely program. And I have to say also the uh, LGBTQIA plus program. Um, Pride Without Prejudice, which is screening at the Pride Centre on Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. That's also a very, very lovely program. And uh, it, it is interesting to me that the, um, uh, the women's voices and the LGBT voices are coming out so strong, and also First Nations voices too, um, in the program. And I hope that translates into cinema more generally because... heading into Reconciliation Week as well. Uh, so perhaps um, it's appropriate to have a little chat about what you are offering in terms of the First Nations film coverage and also you've got some industry development workshops as well, yeah. s- centering those voices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, we, we, we've got quite a, a considerable First Nations program uh, in, in the event, uh, online we have a, a, a program that I'm calling Forming Warwick Thornton, and we did a similar program with Jane Campion a couple of years ago. And what I'm trying to do there is look at the early works of important Australian filmmakers, and Warwick Thornton is is a, an incredibly important Australian filmmaker, and he works across not just um, film and short film and such, but also moving the jar and, and other elements. Um, so I've got a program of his early works that he made largely with the Australian Film and Television and Radio School when he was a student there. Uh, so uh, I've got about seven, six or seven of his short films, which is screening online. That's a very lovely program. Uh, we also have um, Kelp Pell coming over from Western Australia. He's a, a brilliant um, uh, First Nations performer, singer and, and actor. Uh, he was in Rachel Perkins' film One Night the Moon, which was a nice little one-hour musical, a, rural, um, you know, a, a country musical, uh, starring Paul Kelly as well and Chris Haywood. Uh, so Kelton's coming over and we're screening him with that at the, at the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda uh, with Uncle Jack Charles, who will be um, the MC of the, the afternoon. And we have a whole range of uh, First Nations musicians playing as well. So it's a really great afternoon of entertainment. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Kelvin Pell is amazing. He's an incredible raconteur and a wonderful performer, as, as is Uncle Jack Charles. So um, that will be a fantastic evening. And within the program as well, there's a number of um, First Nations films. Probably one of my favourites is a, a, a film called Bunker First Fleet. And that's just an amazingly ambitious First Nations uh, sci-fi film, a uh, sci-fi fantasy film set in the future, kind of reminiscent to a degree of the recent um, Denis Villeneuve film Dune. Uh, it's a fantastic film. It's so big uh, and uh, 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 wonderful to see on the big screen and very unusual as well. And in fact, when you talk to the filmmakers and other First Nations people about um, uh, First Nations themes in sci-fi, they uh, really feel that uh, the First Nations culture and, and, and such belief is uh, uh, easily translatable to the sci-fi and fantasy uh, genre because of its um, openness to, to ideas and openness to, to talking about these things. 
uh, and presenting them on the big screen. So uh, that's uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that on the big screen. So and with the with the um, uh, professional development day, as you mentioned as well, we've got a really great session looking at uh, filming on country. So the protocols that you need to undertake and uh, an engineer to, um, to to film effectively, both in the regional areas, but in metropolitan areas, in consultation with First Nations people. Yeah, that's a really important uh, session. Yeah. I, I saw that one there on the the schedule. And um, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but um, I also noticed you have uh, sessions uh, coming out of the Scottish Documentary Program, and also some. Of Japanese films, uh, which come out of the sister city relationship that Port Phillip has with the city of Obu in Japan, can you tell us a little bit about both those collaborations and and why they've uh, been brought into the program? Yeah, look, um, every year we have an international uh, collaboration and, and work with a film festival or, or um, film agency overseas. And very early on, I was approached by the Documentary Film Institute to see if we were interested in, in platforming um, some of their works. And, you know, personally, I love documentary films. It's my favourite film genre uh, and have worked in it. I'm working with um, producing three short documentaries in Western Australia at the moment. So when they approached us, it was like, you know what? Yes. Um, so those films are great. They're, they're, they fit the spirit of the film festival itself, you know, which is largely new and emerging filmmakers. So there is that sense. You know, those films are so energetic. They've got such a great perspective, again, in, in areas of social justice. And, and even, and you know, one of the things about film right at the moment, particularly short film, is, is that it's really community-oriented. You know, it's looking at relationships within community and relationships people have with community. So we've got two programs from the Documentary uh, Film Institute in Scotland, which is really fantastic. And as you said, Obu is a sister city of the magnificent city of Port Phillip, and uh, we try and work with them every year, actually. So we've got a, a... It's actually quite a long program of short films from them, uh, and uh, they're, they're fantastic. The Japanese screen culture is just so great. The filmmaking style is so different in Japan, uh, so clean and lean. Uh, I really love it. I really love working with others. They're really uh, so much fun to work with. And we swap films with them too. So they take some of our films and we take some of their films, which is which is really fantastic. And I love those relationships. They're great. Mm. So we're getting a real real spectrum of uh, films from, from different countries and yeah. uh, and from our own. It's very important too for filmmakers as well to see their place in the international landscape. Mm. It's important for them. And also to share some of the universal themes and human experiences that um, cross all boundaries. Correct, correct, yes. So um, a few details of the event. I believe it's a hybrid event with both in-person films and screenings and also online viewing opportunities. That's correct. It's mostly mostly in, in, in real life. And how do listeners buy tickets? Well, if they want to go to stkildafilmfestival.com.au, everything's there, all the film information's there, tickets online, uh, and uh, they're selling really super well. I'm really, really happy with it. Uh, the Astra is such a magnificent venue, so I'm not surprised people are wanting to 
spent some time in, in that venue. I was there the other day, and it's just like, oh, my Lord, this building is just magnificent. Uh, so uh, so it's all online. The Professional Development Day, which is happening on Saturday at the JMC Academy in South Melbourne, that's completely free. Um, so just drop in. If you're a, a filmmaker, fantastic. If you're just a film lover and you want to see how it all works, just come right in and, and, take, a, and take a look. It's all completely free. So, uh, uh, so we'd love to see you. Fantastic. So um, the St Kilda Film Festival kicks off this Friday and runs until June the 5th. So um, thank you very much, Richard, and all the best for it, and I hope to get along myself shortly. Oh, look, yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And tell me on the show and say hello. I'll buy you a drink when I see you. That'll be excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs> a pleasure, pleasure. That was Richard Sawada, director of the St Kilda Film Festival, Australia's oldest short film festival. And uh, as he said, you can buy tickets and check out the program at www.stkildafilmfestival.com.au. And uh, just a plug for next week that uh, Kelton Pell, who Richard mentioned, uh, he'll be on the show next week. You're listening to 3CR. We'll be back with you shortly. There's a cold rain on the autumn wind A brother murdered in Sydney town Mark my brother on his supposed eagle Covering his home and send him down He say, oh, 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 oh him down Sad rivers of tears Two hundred years in the river of fear Send him down They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son. Shot him dead in his marble bed with a pump action 12 gauge shotgun. Fatherless child, even wife, a black fugitive on the run. On the run, two centuries from oppression's loaded guns. We say, oh, 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 Gunned him down. Sad rivers of tears, 200 years in the Terrorists dressed in uniform under the protection of their law. Terrorized blacks and dawns of fear that come smashing through your door. You're not safe outside on Freedom Street, you're not safe inside the can. There's shotguns and there's stun guys, the license to drop you where you stand. We say, whoa, whoa. Sad rivers of tears, two hundred years in the river of fear, turning down. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was Kev Carmody with River of Tears. Tonight at the Wheeler Centre, non-for-profit mental health service provider Wellways is holding their free annual lecture. This year's is Grassroots to Governance, Mental Health Lived Experience in Leadership. 
So tonight there'll be a panel discussion at the end, but the event will start off with a keynote address from Debbie Hamilton, who is a systematic mental health advocate with experience on both sides of the mental health system, which she is working to change to better suit the needs of people with a psychosocial disability, in particular the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And she's here to tell us more this morning on 3CR Breakfast. Good morning and welcome to 3CR, Debbie. Hi, Ella. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Now, um, you seem particularly well qualified for the role of um, systemic or systematic. I'm not sure the <laughs> um, best way to pronounce that. Uh, mental health advocate. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I was saying you have experience on both sides of the system. Um, you've worked as a nurse and a doctor. Uh, can you tell us a little more about what that role encompasses and what it means on a sort of day-to-day basis as well? Sure, sure. So... Advocacy normally is done one-to-one and, you know, one person sticks up for another person. And what my role is that I sit on committees and boards uh, of organisations and strive to make changes to improve things for people with mental illnesses. So I don't do one-to-one advocacy, but I certainly... uh, uh, strive to change things from the systems level. And I've been doing that for about 20 years on and off. Um, so, yeah, and the talk tonight is about how we get people to the level that they can be competent systemic advocates on the various boards, committees and executive roles around Australia. Yeah, I think um, for a lot of people, the importance of having someone with lived experience in a like a front racing, sorry, excuse me, front facing role, for example, a therapist is more obvious to them. But it's it's actually really important to have um, people with lived experience in uh, the development and in the shaping of these systems. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yes, a really good example of that is the work that's been done around the NDIS. Um, because when the NDIS was developed, it, um, people with a mental illness were sort of put in at the last minute. And so there wasn't a lot of thought developed around the fact that, for instance, people have often fluctuating needs and episodic illness rather than having a permanent all-the-time disability. So one of the things, major things that's changed is they put into place uh, a recovery framework with a view to, for instance, uh, um, allowing people to have uh, sort of quote, quote, permanent disability even though their illness is fluctuating. And it also has changed the way that the NDIS works with people. I should say its aim is to change this way and to put people, uh, put systems in place to support people's strengths and hopes and the changes that they might go through so that they can, in fact, uh, find recovery rather than disability. So that's been a really big change that a lot of people working at the systemic level have been able to implement. And I guess... um uh, the practical effect of that for um, people actually using NDIS packages um, 
would that'd be a huge amount, I'm sure. But does that mean things like instead of every time they're going through a rough patch or a need of more support, they don't don't then have to go through the whole referral process and um, reevaluation of whether and what they need, improving yes. their need that's, for support. That's the theory. We'll see it in practice. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but even the fact that they've kind of done that, that didn't happen out of the blue. It happened because people with a lived experience and other service providers jumped up and down for a long time to say this has got to change. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we've covered the NDS a bit and we've certainly heard, yeah, a lot of um, feedback around that. Um, I wanted to ask you a terminology question, actually. So, um, people with lived ex- uh, sorry, people who are using uh, mental health services, the the term used uh, within the system is um, consumer, um, and I wondered how you felt about that because um, I suppose it can be a bit distancing. And I noticed in everything I was reading about you ahead of our chat today, you had um, consumer uh, in inverted commas. Is that a term you you like, or how comfortable are you using it? What's your preference? It's, it's personally a term that I don't like. But when you think that term was adopted in the 1990s when there was no no mental health uh, people with, a, let's say, no people with a lived experience had a foot in the door in any services. So the term was adopted saying we're consumers, we're people who receive this service and we deserve a voice in the way it's delivered. Um, but over time, people have decided that that particular term isn't in vogue. And most people would uh, refer to, say, a person has a lived experience and of, of a mental illness. So you'd say, he's a lived experience advocate or there are peer workers. It's another term that's used for people working in the uh, hospital system. Uh, so... Um, yeah, it, it has changed. Lived experience, I think, isn't just, um, you know, a bit of anxiety about performing or one episode of depression. It, it's really about having something happen in your life that completely throws you off, off balance and leaves you without much control. And so lived experience is about... Um, Having, having something that makes you reassess your entire life and what's important to you. Yeah. And yeah, I think as a um, term or expression, it kind of um, puts uh, these uh, incidents as an um, asset rather than consumer, which kind of, yeah, I think can have some negative connotations or is more about what you've... Um, taken rather than what you're actually bringing to the table, which is a lot. Um, and the event tonight is about how to um, develop pathways um, for people with a lived experience into uh, working roles within the mental health system. Um, can you tell us a bit about your lived experience and how you became a mental health uh, systemic advocate? Sure, sure. I, uh, in my life, did nursing first. And then I decided I really wanted to be a doctor. So I studied medicine. And in third year in medicine, I had um, a very severe depression where I was hearing voices and 
uh, wasn't too good. And I went into hospital and had one of, well, the first of many experiences that were quite um, rocking. And, and that meant being forced onto the floor and, you know, being in isolation and really being treated very poorly. So it was really from that time on that I that I have, I had a real sense of, um, a real sense of injustice. So in the 1990s, I started doing work as an advocate, as a peer worker, really, working in mental health services. And then I got a bit better and I worked for many years as a doctor. And then from about 1912 on, I started doing advocacy. I started doing systemic advocacy around the place, and uh, it really has been motivated by the, you know, by my treatment along the way. Because I've had many admissions to hospital with um, what people might call a bipolar one uh, illness. It's been incredibly pesky along the way, and. Uh, you know, at times really difficult to manage. So these days I'm much better and, you know, being able to have a good overview of the system, having been in it for over 20 years, is um, is productive, I really think, at this stage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I can imagine. And... Um how has uh, the involvement of um, people with lived experience um, uh, in shaping the uh, mental health services changed over time, I imagine, um, or I would hope things are pretty different now um, compared to when you were initially entering uh, the system? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's still not great. <laughs> Long way to go. <laughs> I think that the um, systems have seen the virtue in... Uh, approaching um, approaching working with people in the sense that the idea that they're not going to be unwell forever, that they can find meaning and purpose in their life, even if they've got ongoing symptoms. And it's also meant that peer workers are now working in many services, mental health hospitals and in the community and not-for-profit organisations, and they've made a really big difference because they have a deep understanding of someone's experience. They have an understanding of the culture in hospitals, which is quite in itself interesting. And they also have an understanding of recovery and the difference that can make. And, and it really is interesting that having peer workers, having people with the lived experience on the ward, uh, reduces the amount of... Uh, restraint practices or sedation that people have to have. And that's a really interesting thing and it's made uh, a huge um, impact on how the wards run. Sure, there's still a lot of work to be done to change hospital culture, but it has been a really, uh, uh, a really good change and the evidence backs it up that it is really good. Yeah, definitely. And I think it makes a lot of sense that we're seeing those um, changes. I think a better understanding of the 
person mm. you're there to help is, um, yeah, of course it's going to make every step of the way um, easier and, yeah, better. Mm. Um, and, yeah, as we said, it's it's about um, these direct interactions and it's also about the design or process within a system. Um, can you think of any uh, systems or processes within a system that have changed for the better with um, peer or um, lived experience involvement or mm. feedback? The one that I do most of my work around the NDIS and the adoption of the recovery framework was huge. And things such as the NDIS Act, in fact, had to be changed uh, for this recovery framework to come into place. Um, that's a huge change. And also, um, you know, back to the, the peer workforce, the lived experience workforce that's now uh, coming into all the uh, mental health services. People are viewing mental illness these days quite differently. It's not seen as forever. And it's much more seen as something that someone can work through. And that has been a significant change. When you think that in the 1990s, people were living in, um, you know, uh, institutions with mental illness. So there has been an incredible change over the last 20 years. There's a lot more work to be done to make it much better. Yeah, yep, absolutely. All right, and we are um, short of time, so just before quick, uh, before we let you go, uh, could you quickly um, give us the plug for the event tonight? Um, how can people... Okay. So it's a public lecture, and it's being held at the Wheeler Centre, which is part of the south wing of the Library of Victoria. It's 106 Little Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, and it starts at 6.30 p.m. Excellent. And, um, yeah, people can attend online, right, if they're not able yes. to get out in person. Wonderful. They can, but I'm unaware of the details of that. But if they called Wellways, W-E-L-L-W-A-Y-S, they'd be able to find out the um, information about watching it online. Excellent. Yeah, we'll um, post a link on our Wednesday Brecky page for anyone who wants more details. That's and um Who's it for tonight? Is um, is it aimed at other service providers or um, people who are currently within the system? Or all of that. It's, it's a public lecture that's open to anyone who wants to come. Great. Uh, so it's not particularly aimed at anyone in particular. Excellent. And yeah, it sounds like um, useful information for everyone. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> All right, thanks very much for joining us this morning, Debbie. I'm looking forward to hearing more tonight when you talk at this event. Okay, thank you very much, Ella, for having me. Thanks. And that was um, Debbie, uh, Debbie Hamilton, sorry, (laughs) speaking to us about her role as a systemic mental health advocate um, and the Wellways annual lecture tonight. So this year's is Grassroots to Governance. Uh, It's about mental health lived experience and leadership. Um, You can get along to the Wheeler Centre or you can listen online. We'll post a link. Uh, You're listening to 3CR and we'll be back with you shortly.
If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10 a.m. Saturdays. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Okay, so last week we spoke with Linda Fisk, co-founder of Seeds of Affinity, Pathways for Women, a not-for-profit organisation supporting South Australian women re-enter the community from prison. For those of you who didn't catch that segment, Linda is a woman with lived experience of prison. She is a member of the National Network for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls and in 2018 graduated from Uni SA with a degree in psychological science. Linda described the immense barriers women exiting prison face, including getting ID paperwork sorted just to open a bank account. This week, we're going to hear about the new technology tool, LindaBot, being developed to support women with these challenges and why the women themselves were vital participants in the design process. But first, Linda shares a bit about a key collaborator in the LindaBot project, Social work lecturer and chairperson of Seeds of Affinity, Dr. Michelle Jardorn. Michelle's been involved with us since 2015, 14. Um, yeah, 2014, Michelle came to us. Um, she was doing a photo voice project. Um, she's doing a PhD at um, Flinders University. And she did some uh, participatory research. I always struggle with that word. With us, and after she gained her PhD, and um, she uh, wanted to give back to us, um, 
because she she knows and she feels that participatory research is about giving back, not just taking from the organisation. So she's now our chairwoman, our chairperson, and um, she's given back in spades. And she quite regularly uh, comes to seeds and she listens to the women. So she she understands what their experience is and she might, she would have been talking with her colleague about that experience and they've come up with this awesome idea to try and you know assist women in that um with that difficult problem michelle can you elaborate on what got started for you um in terms of developing this technology and um, how that happened so like a lot of ideas, they start with a bit of an off-the-cuff comment. And um, we'd actually, at Seeds, we'd won some funding that was suicide prevention funding. Um, I think it was way back in 2017. And the idea was that some of the toiletries we make would be given to women as they left prison with some just some basic information on there about who, who to contact if things are getting really tough. And part of that was that the, the women would work together to package that up. So it was kind of a paying it forward kind of idea. And um, we had a few problems with the way that that was being distributed in the prison incorrectly. So I remember when the next round of funding came up, I had this um, off-the-cuff walking out of the room idea about wouldn't it be great if we had an app where we could just had control over how and what information was distributed. And so that kind of started it. And um, we did actually look at app development um, and when I met, I was introduced to my colleague Susanna at UniSA. So Susie um, works in our creative industries department, whereas I'm in social work. Um, but Susie's got a strong interest in the way that technology can be used uh, to, for social change. And for me, it was, um, it was looking at ways to improve people's lives that are outside of the system, that don't add another layer of the system there uh, because of that. The, and what Linda explained is pretty much a lot of what social workers do in their work is actually help the people they work alongside to navigate systems. So systems are, are difficult no matter what. So uh, Susanna and I got a tiny little bit of internal funding from Creative Industries and we came and met with the women and we kind of listened to a few of their you know, what? tell us what happens in the first few weeks when you get out of jail. And, of course, I knew most of that anyway, but it was useful for Susie to hear that. And we then looked at it, and, of course, there are lots of things that uh, any technology can't fix, like the housing problem. And housing in South Australia is one of the hardest nuts to crack across the whole of Australia. Uh, so very difficult if you're at the bottom of the list. And um, But what we did learn was this thing about the ID. And, I mean, the ID, getting the ID is so complicated that when Linda actually explained it to me, for me to actually write that into a paragraph that actually took you through the steps, took me about three goes of sending it up and down my corridor trying to get people to help me to make it seem sensible. So it's not a, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. So, and we chose to use, so what we've actually done rather than an app is uh, it, it 
it kind of attaches onto a Facebook Messenger because that way it works for women who have got an Android or a smart or a iPhone. So we wanted to make it as accessible as possible. And what we've done so far really is only a prototype. So we're currently um, in conversations with a couple of funders that we're hoping will be successful to take the project to completion. And the women have given us some other ideas about what we might do that can also add to this, you know. Um, and we kind of wanted to think about some ways um, – that actually let women achieve something for themselves because having things done for you doesn't give you that same sense of achievement that it is of actually getting there and doing it yourself. Um, and of course the difficulty around mobile phone access is hard in itself. So we also did a bit of background uh, that I did in my seeds role of we got us a grant that covered they actually got us some mobile phones and three months of data that was part of the South Australian Digital Inclusion Strategy. So we got a little bit of grant funding with that. And so the plan, the long-term vision is, is that um, when Linda goes and visits women in the prison and they're ready for release, that she will set them up with a phone, set them up with the things that they need. And one of the things that they can have access to or can access is the what we lovingly called LindaBot because it's a, it's based on a chatbot. But really what we – and what that was the thing that we saw when we did the co-design workshop with the women, that even though we kind of explicitly said, now the what do you need but the answer's not Linda – Everyone said, well, actually, the answer is Linda. So, because, <laughs> and it, so, um, Linda knows how to navigate the systems, as she said, but it's not just that. She's also very trusted, um, by the women as being authentic. So what we did was, and you know, we've all seen chatbots pop up when we look up particular sites and they can be quite impersonal. So we really wanted to program into it this kind of, a language that was caring and, and loving and, and it actually started with, we're so glad that you're out of jail. What can we do? So it was, um, you know, we kind of wanted to be really mindful of that as being, it's tailored for exactly what the seeds of affinity women need, got women that come out of prison. And, um, you know, it's a small step, but we were also very clear about wanting to create something that didn't become part of the system and it is by the women, for the women. Um, and, you know, even the opportunity, I think, to see, to engage with designing technology is something much nicer than some of the punitive things that, that women are expected to do when they get out of prison. So uh, we're about to launch into thinking about the second stage, about where we might take it. And um, it's probably the most, it, no, it is, it's the most exciting project I've ever worked on. So, um, and it's just a, it's something that actually has the potential to make a small difference to a small group of women. And that's okay. We don't, I think part of the problem is, is often we, um, people want to find a solution that fits everybody all of the time. But as, you know, the way that Linda works is, is that every single woman is special and they all have their own special strengths, but needs and complexities. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do. So we, do, we don't want to upscale this to every person that's been in prison in Australia. We really want to specifically develop it with seeds. And then hopefully once we get it to, a point where we think it works really well is actually take it to other organisations that support women that leave prison because this sort of language is is pitched at other women. Yeah. 
That's that's fascinating. And you spoke about the language. Um, what I was interested in hearing was how you made decisions um, and what you came up with in terms of the language to to make this device as user friendly, but also as caring yeah. and and responsive to the emotional needs of the women who would be using it. Well, I mean, as you can imagine it at this early stage, we really could only frame it around that as a as a tester. But we really wanted to, you know, say we're glad that you're out. We're, you know, we really want to see you at Seeds if you need the help. You know, like there was lots of ways that we did that. And that was through um and I guess for me, having volunteered with Seeds for eight years now, uh, it almost becomes a little bit normal. But I guess when Susanna met the women from Seeds and and learned about saw Linda's way of working, I guess that struck her more so because it was unusual um, in what we see in human services, I guess. So, uh, and, you know, using such a community caring role. And I remember when I, when I first met Linda, how... Um, she talked to me about how that's such an important thing to kind of show women how much you care about them because they come out of prison often feeling very frozen and very numb and have used that as a defence process. So it's about trying to undo that in little steps as we go. Uh, so we also did use, um, we kind of got it so that people can just press a yes or a no and don't have to actually type in very much. Uh, and, you know, there are, of course, there are going to be women that come out of prison who have, um, you know, low levels of literacy. But um, I've also seen, you know, so many letters that women in prison write, and many and many are very, very articulate. So I think we shouldn't underestimate just because they may not have formal education that, um, you know, what they've learned in how to articulate themselves is actually quite quite powerfully strong so that's kind of what we were after at the start and it is a very it's a small start but we did take it back to the women who had a bit of a look at it and they were pretty excited about it you know we've got a picture of Linda is kind of like the face of that and possibly as we move into the next stages we might be able to create a Linda avatar um, which is you know pretty 21st century and I think even that is um even that's a really nice thing for the women to be involved in something, uh, you know, that that normally they're not involved in. And, Mm. um, you know, it's so often people have things done for them, whereas this is being done with them and always having them as our consultants, as our experts and seeing that. So we, we employed one of the other seeds women, um, to be like our research associate liaison who worked with us as the research team and with the SEEDS women and kind of helped sort of navigate that kind of space in between the two groups. So it's it's really important for us as researchers to, to really respect the co-design process of this and the co-creation, but to also make sure that it's... Um, what we would call a non-reformist reform. So something that actually improves the lives of of criminalised women without actually extending the reach of the criminal justice system. And that was University of South Australia lecturer, Dr Michelle Jardon and Linda Fisk, co-founder of Seeds of Affinity, Pathways for Women, a South Australian not-for-profit organisation supporting women exiting prison. And they've been sharing the evolution of LindaBot, 
a tech tool designed by and for women leaving prison and entering community. To find out more and donate to Seeds of Affinity, head to seedsofaffinity.org. And for women in Victoria who have had contact with the criminal justice system and seeking help, you can contact the Melbourne organisation Flat Out at www.flatout.org.au. Telephone number 93726155. And women, non-binary and gender diverse people can also contact The Wire, the Women's Information and Referral Exchange phone support line on 1300 134 130 and of course lifeline 131114 now I'll hand back to Ella who's got a few more comments to make about the yeah. uh, Wellways uh, event a quick uh, yeah an important correction to my uh, previous interview with um, Debbie Hamilton Debbie kindly just contacted me to remind me the event is actually tomorrow evening not tonight um, so that's uh, Grassroots to, to Governance, Mental Health Lived Experience in Leadership, uh, on at the Wheeler Centre at 6pm tomorrow night. Um, you can also access it online. I'll put the link on our Wednesday Brecky page. So my apologies. And now over to Jacob. <laughs> Thank you. So on the 24th of April 2013, the world was shocked at the collapse of the Rana Plaza building in Dhaka, Bangladesh, that housed five garment factories producing clothes for well-known brands. The building collapse killed at least 1,132 workers and injured more than 2,500, shining a spotlight on some of the poorest working conditions in the world. Asia Pacific Currents brings us this next interview with Casey Thompson from the CFMEU Manufacturing Division about the ninth anniversary of the Rana Plaza tragedy and solidarity for Bangladeshi garment workers. And just a warning, this interview contains mentions of death and suicide. Our feature interview this morning is Casey Thompson from the CFMEU in New South Wales from the Manufacturing Division. Um, we are discussing the anniversary and commemoration of the um, tragic murder of over a 1,000 workers at Rana Plaza in Bangladesh. Welcome to the program, Casey. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Just to begin with, tell us what your role is over there at the CFMEU. Yeah, sure. So I am the compliance officer at the CFME Manufacturing Division across New South Wales and Queensland. So I work with the Ethical Clothing Australia Accreditation Program. And so for people that don't know, the Ethical Clothing Australia or ECA um, is an accreditation body governed by a board comprised of union representatives and employer representatives that want to see the TCF textile clothing and footwear industry in Australia cleaned up. And so we undertake audits of textile clothing and footwear supply chains across Australia to make sure that workers are treated fairly, are safe when they go to work and are paid their legal wages and entitlement. Excellent. Great. Thank you for that. So just to begin with, can you remind listeners what happened at Rana Plaza um, that is cause for this commemoration? Yeah, sure. So Rana Plaza, as you said, is um, a plaza or a factory in Bangladesh, which is well known for an industrial disaster which occurred there on the 24th of April in 2013. So this is the ninth year anniversary. And so 
Bangladesh, so people know, is the second largest garment producing nation in the world. So there's 4.5 million garment workers there, of which 3.2 million of them are women. And so on the 24th of April in 2013, um, the Rana Plaza building collapsed. And as you said, over 1,100 workers tragically lost their lives. And then over 2,500 were badly injured. And so it is regarded to be the worst industrial disaster in modern history. And what is so shocking particularly about it is that there was warning that there were very serious health and safety issues and structural issues with the building. Um, a lot of the tenants in the building evacuated, but unfortunately the garment workers um, were forced by their employers to go back to work despite um, the known uh, issues with health and safety of the building and therefore it collapsed and a lot of them tragically lost their lives. Yeah, it was very distressing. Um, and like you said, it, one of the biggest industrial um, uh, incidents that we've seen. Casey, exactly. can you tell us um, of the surviving workers, have the, sorry, have the surviving workers and their families been compensated since in the nine years uh, following the disaster? Yeah, so there has been a um, program called the Rana Plaza Arrangement, which has delivered compensation for workers. However, we would say that whilst compensation is, of course, very important, there is so much more that is required. Uh, you know, people lost their lives, people um, were incredibly injured, people lost their family members, and obviously there were incredibly distressing scenes. You know, some of the volunteers that had to pull out people from the rubble mm -hmm. um, later went on to take their own lives because of um, the trauma that they experienced in, you know, the aftermath. Of, of the event. So whilst compensation is important, there is obviously so much more that's required. You know, workers need concrete changes. They need to be assured that um, this won't happen again, that workplace health and safety practices have been put in place to, to know that if they go back to work there, they're going to be safe and come home at the end of the day. Well, on that very issue, has anything changed in Bangladesh to ensure this never happens again? I mean, we, we know that the, the, uh, of the farcical process that is the Building and Fire Safety Accord, ha has that in all of these years been cleaned up to become more than a toothless tiger? Is it effective at all? So the accord, as you say, um, was put into place in 2013. Within a month of the collapse, over 222 companies signed on to it. It is a legally binding agreement um, between essentially unions um, and employers and workers to ensure that, yes, yeah, safety um, and wages are fair and uh, th those those areas are addressed and monitored. Um, it has been, you know, effective and it has led to very positive change. Of course, um, a lot more needs to be done. Um, there needs to be a lot more accountability for uh, the, the the businesses that and the, the brands internationally that purchase their items from Rana Plaza in Bangladesh. Uh, we are very pleased um, that in at the end of last year, in 2021, the accord was um, extended. Um, there was a bit of um, discussion and hesitancy from some of um, the companies about whether it was going to continue, so thankfully it did. Um, it's now the Accord for Health and Safety, and it came into effect this new version in September last year. And so... It, it is doing very good things, but of course, um, you know, even more needs to be done. We need to have, you know, increased transparency requirements for 
the businesses and the brands that are purchasing their items there. We need disclosure requirements so that the those businesses are forced to to publicly state where their work is being undertaken so that there can be transparency and monitoring of the conditions of those workers undertaking that work. Absolutely. So, you know, the accord is important, as you say, but more needs to happen. Um, In line with that, why is solidarity amongst workers important on this issue? And could you just tell us a little bit, just briefly, what what solidarity might look like in this instance? Yeah, sure. So solidarity is essential. Solidarity is, uh, you know, coming together. It's offering uh, support to our fellow human beings and to workers. It's standing together, not leaving people, you know, alone to deal with um, these issues by themselves. It's, you know, most importantly, it's working collectively to drive change um, and to, as I said before, ensure that people can come home um, from work at the end of the day. Um, And it's so important in this instance because we do need support from workers and the community for the accord, for the accord to remain and to, you know, have the power it needs to drive real change. Um, You know, solidarity between workers internationally is so important in this instance. So garment workers around the world coming together so that Bangladeshi workers know they're not alone in their struggle and that we're all um, working together to ensure that the Bangladeshi and the international textile, clothing and footwear industry is cleaned up. Uh, It's you know, so important because, as I said before, we need tougher um, transparency and disclosure requirements, and those things only come when we all come together and demand them. Um, and it's also so important because one of the things that has really been very helpful um, in improving things for Bangladeshi workers has been the trade union's involvement over there with the accord and their their um, organising and empowering of workers to come together and have a voice um, to be able to, to drive change. And so we know that obviously trade union organising and worker empowerment is only possible when we all come together and show solidarity. Could you uh, tell us, Casey, do the workers at Quality Tops feel an affinity with the Bangladeshi garment workers? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, there's a real strong sense of global solidarity amongst textile, clothing, footwear and garment workers around the world. Uh, the the struggles that they face are so similar. People don't often realise uh, that there are health and safety challenges in the garment industry in Australia. Thankfully, a company like Qualitops is doing the right thing and is monitored through the Ethical Clothing Australia program and the union there. But in the rest of the industry, there are a lot of non-compliances and so there is a real connection between Australian textile clothing and footwear workers and those around the world. And as I said, the workers at Qualitops, um, many of them are members of their union. They participate in the annual audits of Ethical Clothing Australia and so they understand and see directly you know, the importance of programs and audits like that and, you know, the need for that to be expanded to places like, you know, Bangladesh. Thank you so much, Casey, um, for all your time on the program this morning and also um, organising that event on the 26th. Beyond that event, if listeners wanted to stay involved in solidarity work, what should they do? Yeah, um, that great question. I think, you know, firstly, they can contact yourselves. Um, I would definitely recommend that. Contact yourselves and keep up to date with your programming covering these really important issues. Um, keep their eyes out for events like the one we are having on Tuesday and come to those wherever they can. You know, if you're a local 
garment worker, um, join join your union and get active in our global solidarity campaigns. Uh, where you're able to um, look out to shop ethically as much as possible, look for ethically ethical clothing Australia accredited garments so that you know that when you're purchasing items, they're not made by sweatshop labour, that the workers who made your clothes were paid and treated fairly. Um, and, yeah, keep in touch with yourselves. Excellent. And the great coverage you've got of events like this. Great to see. That was an interview from Asia Pacific Currents speaking with the CFMEU Manufacturing Division, Casey Thompson. And if you want to catch more content on Asia Pacific and workers' rights in general, uh, you can catch that show Saturdays at 9am here on 3CR. Yeah, and I remember that um, Rana Plaza event really well. I think it was the first time we all kind of got a wake-up call about um, the impact of fast fashion and um, the supply chain, which we often don't know a lot about. You get really far removed from it. Um, I think it's, yeah, an important reminder that even if something's cheap, um, someone's paying for it and some way it, it costs. Um, mm. um, but, yeah, it can be really hard to track where your um, products are coming from and follow the supply chain. Um, and remember, even when you're trying to get the right information, it's not always easy to find. Um, and I think that's by design. And a lot of the brands might be claiming certain certifications or associations with, you know, eco and sustainable um, Mm. criteria, but, yeah, they're not all equal as well. Mm. It's interesting. Has anyone seen those ads uh, with with Jane Goodall, who's advertising for Booty? No, No, I don't think so. (laughs) So um, for context, Booty is this uh, underwear and socks brand, and they use uh, bamboo, so it's uh, supposedly more sustainable. I haven't really done any research, so I don't know uh, how specific that is. But they've they've just hired uh, Jane Goodall, who's like a famous conservationist, and she says, you know, saving the world is a big task, but you can start by changing your underwear. So yeah, I think that's a nice mantra yeah. to to hold. Yeah, um, and yeah, hopefully if it's coming from Jane Goodall, it's <laughs> legit. I trust her. To... I tr- <laughs> yeah. They were smart <laughs> to get her on board. It's a bit like when we did the chocolate scorecard around Easter and it's sort of one product you could focus on. And mm. yeah, and as the person I interviewed said, um, you know, clothing is an essential item and chocolate is a discretionary purchase. So you know, you've got more, you know, autonomy, I suppose, to, to, to buy and what you buy. You're not dependent on having it to exist, although I'm sure there'll be people out there that might argue against mm. that. You <laughs> Could make a fair case. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial statement on uh, who's here <laughs> breakfast yet. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we are ticking along in the show, and I was thinking we could have a quick unpack of the weekend's events, uh, namely mm. the election. Uh, what was everyone's response to the verdict on the weekend? Relief. <laughs> <laughs> Joy. <laughs> Sweet relief. <laughs> Sweet relief. I, I felt really vindicated as a young person, to be honest, because I think we had such high hopes in 2019 that climate crisis would be on the cards as a major election priority and I think the outcome of that one just showed that yeah perhaps it wasn't front of mind for a lot of people Um, but I think this time around um, not only did we see a massive 
uh, decrease in seats for the coalition. We also saw a massive increase for parties that were really advocating strongly on climate policies, um, such as the the Teal Independents uh, and the Greens. And I think it's, yeah, it's really exciting and it gives me hope, <laughs> which is the first time I've said that about Australian federal politics for a while, is that, yeah, the, it finally feels like there's some um, opportunities for change. Yeah. And I, I wonder also whether the pandemic and that sort of um, slower life that we were uh, living during that period really meant that people reflected on what was important to them and sort of came back to grassroots sort of values. Mm. Um, because I think, you know, there was also that swing to the the local representative. You know, we saw that with Christina Keneally losing her seat. Yeah, definitely. Um, she wasn't a local. There was a local who spoke Vietnamese and, you know, represented a, a large proportion of that community. And there was another local independent in another um, electorate who was uh, pitching based on a very local important issue to that Mm. community. Um, So people are kind of maybe connecting with what's really important to them. They're connecting with their local areas as well. So I think that really played into uh, the response. Yeah. Yeah, I... um I think so, Tony. I also felt really hopeful, um, partly because, yeah, I think um, people showed um, how much of a priority the environment is. Um, And I think the other thing was um, seeing lots of people from different backgrounds entering Mm. politics. So I think um, for so long it's been so dominated by middle or middle upper class white men with a um, really privileged background. Um, And suddenly we were seeing people from, yeah, all different backgrounds and all different walks of life, Mm. obviously, um, big part of um, Anthony Albanese. I've been looking up videos on how to pronounce his name correctly, but I believe that's it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I had a, um, this is history of coming from um, uh, a housing development, Um, but I think we saw a lot of people, like um, uh, someone who got a lot of headlines was um, Sam Lim and WA, the former dolphin trainer. Um, But also, yeah, hearing his um, story of growing up uh, incredibly poor, and moving to Australia, um, speaks 10 different languages and, mm. yeah, um, has a completely different approach um, to what we've seen in the past. And I just thought, yeah, I couldn't imagine someone like that being elected, say, 10 years ago. Um, and it's really, yeah. And a large number heartening. of First Nations um, yeah. Yep, absolutely. people, not, not completely representative of their proportion of the population, but a lot more than in the past. And, um, yeah, so I think that the diversity is growing. It's not on par with, you know, reflecting the breakdown of our communities, but mm. it's a, it's improving. Yeah, absolutely. It's going in the right direction and definitely a lot more women, although they did tend to be uh, professional women that were running for those teal independent seats. Mm. Um, Baby steps. <laughs> Baby steps, yes. Mm. It's yeah. certainly... Um, as well set a precedent for what a parliament could look like from a shift away from the two-party system, which mm, is yeah. something that really excites me, um, is the prospect of more independents and minor parties who are actually representative of communities, as you said, um, the seat of Fowler with Christina Keneally and Diley. Uh, winning that seat is a really good example of yeah the power of having someone who's active and, and listening 
Uh, and I think, yeah, the, I don't know, there are a lot of um, major party members who, of course, are very responsive to the needs of their communities, um, but I think independents do it best. Mm. So. Yeah, um, and yeah, forces people to question things more instead of it um, being the status quo unless it's this real mammoth task. Um, anyway, uh, we've just had a look at the clock, all three of us collectively looked up and made <laughs> eye contact. Uh, it's almost 8.30, so we're going to have to head off. Um, but thanks so much for tuning in to 3CR Breakfast this morning. Thanks to our guests, and we'll see you next week. Have a great week. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.